this time we join hands and join hearts. This time located from the Porpoise of Fruititude, located somewhere here in Lower California. Yeah, that's for the audio version that I'm sending out. And I'm sorry if you're a Kitreon of mine, uh, but I thank you all uh, for joining me tonight and for all the Kitreons that are on here as well. Well, they missed out on one hilarious ophthalmologist story, but I've got a hundred of them. <laughs> my favorite one was I was having my eyes did. I told you this. I went to Australia several years ago with Brad and Colin who are a comedy duo on their own. And what I love about the interweb is, um, for instance, I'm in a group with Ryan Stiles, and I have been for some 20 years now and more. And I'll tweet or, or, or Instagram or Chalkblock. I'm on all the uh, uh, websites. I'm on Snicksnack. I'm on Older Guy. Uh, I'm on Sweaty Older Dude. Uh, I'm on Grayback. I'm on Silvertop. Uh, there's a lot of different... What's the one that Glenn Greenwald is going to now, the, the Nazi one? Grumble or something like that? Or fist, Fistly? I can't remember what it is, but it's a disgrumbly, um, uh, unholy. Uh, in any case, I'm on all those sites and um, platforms, rather. And I, uh, much like, uh, what was his name, Tim Daly, the, the knitting diver? Uh, he's always on a platform, isn't he? How come divers dive off platforms? When we were little, we were forced to dive off diving boards. And if you recall what diving boards were like in those days, they were always turquoise and they had sandpaper on them so that you would scratch yourself to death on the way out to the end. And then you'd bounce up and down on them and there was nothing controlling them at all. And they were kind of made out of like a shitty fiberglass and they would bang up and down and then you'd leap off and inevitably land on your stomach. I don't know if anyone had form. I didn't. No one ever taught me to dive. But I was never that interested. I could swim from an early age because my father was the keeper of the Eddystone Light. And he slept with a porpoise late one night. And out of that mating, there came three, a porgy, a bass, and me. But I could swim from an early age. Obviously, uh, my athletic ability has never been in doubt. Um, although I don't know if swimming is an athletic ability. I mean, a bird can do it. Uh, not that birds are stupid. Some birds quite intelligent. I mean, you may have noticed cockatoos lately really getting around. They do a lot of the, a lot of dancing. There's that one uh, on YouTube. What is that one? Tico and the Man. I don't know if you've seen this one, but it's just the best entertainment in the world. I'll come back to my story, by the way. I haven't forgot about Dr. Berlin and going to Australia. Uh, Tico and the Man is this doo doo. Like I guess he's in a band or something because he's middle aged and he knows every rock song ever. Led Zeppelin, ACDC, Talking Heads, white guy stuff, white guy stuff. And he plays white guy rock. And he usually is barefoot sitting there with a guitar. He has a bunch of great guitars. I assume he's a professional musician because he's got some fucking, you know, shreddy axes and some acoustic shit. In any case, this fucking bird runs around the house. And it's not a cockatoo. Is it a parrot? It's yeah. a parrot, I think. Yeah. Tico's a parrot. The parrot is Tico, you see, and he's the man. And he'll just start to play like Led Zeppelin or whatever. This is, I'm doing Stairway to Heaven. That'll cut down on some chit-chat. Out in the audience, like, which fucking Led Zeppelin song is it? Because if I went like this, you'd know which one it was. Hey, fellas, have you heard the news? It really cuts through the quaaludes. And, um, or quaaludes, if you will, and I think you will. Uh, Tico, the man will start to play like the beginning. I'm just going to say it's Stairway to Heaven, right? Which, as you know, longest, boringest song ever next to Roundabout by Yes. And, um, it goes twing, doom, twang, zoom, twing, 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 twang, doom, twing. And the parrot 
doesn't ever sing the words to the songs, even though parrots can learn the words to everything. Parrots will hector you. Uh, Jennifer lived in uh, a place where two parrots used to sit in a tree and go, Mama, Mama, help me. Like that when people would walk by. So people would look around and be like, is there a baby dying? And they go, Mommy, help me. Like that. Like just, they're horrible, right? Parrots are like, what if dinosaurs look? I assume that if you had lived in the Jurassic days, like alley-oop, um, that, uh, that animals, but dinosaurs would beleaguer you. My guess is dinosaurs just run around and fucked with each other. Like there'd be a triceratops and it'd be kind of hokey and it'd be like, what? I've got to, you know, I got to fucking look after these eggs and whatnot. And the littler bird, like the Archaeopteryx, whatever bird fucking dinosaur would come by and go like, mommy, mommy, just fuck with them or whatever noise triceratops made. They go like, and the parrot come back. They spoke cave English which is what everybody knows people in prehistoric times spoke. If you've either seen, ever seen the movie One Million Years B.C. with Raquel Welch, um, they, think, they say things like, Gomb! You know, Wog, Wog, Wogger. Like, everything's slightly not English, but still recognizable as English. Gurum! <laughs> Boys! And then people will go like this, They'll point at themselves, me, somebody, whatever. Like, that's not intuitive. It really isn't. Because people think that this means one, but in France, this means one. Whereas here, this means you're a douchebag. <laughs> and this means you're Paul McCartney in the Helen Wheels video. So, which is so hard to watch. I mean, I love their mullets. But they're riding around in this car and then like, and you're never going to take it away. And like, you're like, fucking Paul McCartney rocked. And then he'll go. And you're like, don't give me the two thumbs up. Why don't you just join 10CC if you want to be that uncool? <laughs> so the, he'll start playing Led Zeppelin, right? Ivan, quankum, queen, quankum, queen. And the bird will go. Because I think the bird has heard rock records, but is doing a foul parody of what he thinks it's, it's almost like a tenacious D observed parody because the bird will go, ah wow, wow, like that. Like it's like, like it's like fucking with you like it's David Lee Roth. And you're like, what? And, that, and they'll play like the ACDC or whatever. And the bird will go, ah And you're like, you're, you're acting like Paul Stanley in every Kiss concert. He is at the entertainment level. I saw Kiss, and I'm telling you that Tico is more entertaining than Paul Stanley was in concert. Because Paul Stanley, you'd see his tits, right? And his hairy breasts. And he'd have the... Ace was the one with the star on his eye. And Gene was the unspeakable, gigantic Jewish one who had sex with a thousand Japanese girls. And then there was Peter, who had a cat face on and was hidden behind the drums, so he was completely irrelevant. And then there was uh, Paul. And Paul was, I believe his character was called The Lover. And so he had like a, a heart and like his tits were hanging out and a giant codpiece. And after every song, he'd go, like that. Just what? What are you doing? When I saw him, he went, hello, San Francisco. And then this is one thing that Kiss would do in the 70s. They would go, and I'm certain they still do it. I'm certain they're still on the road. They were up until uh, the plague. Uh, there's a restaurant at LAX called 
you know, rocking good time. First of all, rock and food, no. Mm-hmm. No. A jazz, classical, Ethiopian, I love it, right? Japanese, uh, I can think of a thousand kinds of music that go with a million kinds of food. Some low-key ambient shit and some, you know, fondue or whatever. Uh, some awesome jazz and maybe a glass of red wine and, you know, some pasta. Even like hilarious, like, you know, ethnic, like you go to a, if you go to Milwaukee um, or anywhere in the Midwest, you'll be astounded at how German everyone is and that literally every woman you meet is named Schmitty. And then you go to these German places and it's like sausages and whatnot and all manner of unspeakable dreck. And uh, they, uh, they'll play like German, like we're all going to slap our thighs and wear... Um, uh, uh, really unsanitary leather shorts, and uh, uh, but but rock. I mean, I remember taking Jennifer to this really bitchin' Italian in Philadelphia, and I'm like, you gotta have the food. It's really good. They used to do like venison with che- or was it pork pork uh, uh, with cherries? Just beautiful, beautiful Italian food. Really handmade pasta, and whatnot, artisanal drinks, and they were playing rock so loud that you're like are, are we at a football match am i in the men's room at like oracle stadium or whatever and that's where so there's a restaurant that's themed with rock at lax and when you walk by it i by the way i've eaten there of course for breakfast you have like the rock and omelet or whatever it's like gross um, don't rock near my omelet just put some cheese in it and go away and um there's a giant picture of like gene simmons that pops up on the billboard outside and you're like, this is not conducive to eating because nothing about Gene Simmons makes me go, fuck, I could go for some Kugel. I could break off some fucking schnitzel here. Uh, So this bird will do like that. And it doesn't go all right. Like Paul Stanley did. And when I saw kiss, it was the night Elvis died and we were pretty drunk. I have to admit we were teenagers. This was 77. Elvis was 44, I think. Elvis was like 12, 13 years old when he died. He was really young. And um, he, uh, uh, his heart exploded because he was taking opioids like nobody's business. And this is something that I think is exciting about the 60s and 70s. Um, Elvis, uh, uh, as Nixon said, Elvis came to the White House and Nixon, Richard Nixon, who was president at the time, uh, and then later uh, turned into one of them, Satan's Familiars, and was found <laughs> running up and down the beaches of Southern California near San Clemente wearing a suit and tie and cufflinks, uh, as so many of demons will. Uh, said, uh, well, Trisha was, a, was an enormous fan of Elvis Presley, and he came to the White House. And a lot of people said he was on drugs, but they were prescription drugs, so they were legal. And uh, <laughs> I think that's a very good way to look at life. So... Elvis would uh, was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. A sucker was racist, straight up and plain. Motherfuck him and John Wayne. Um, the uh, he uh, would send minions out, of which he had many. And there's one thing you can tell about people, and it's when they have an assistant or when they have a retinue. Um, then you can, I think, safely assume that their personality is starting to shred. Scrabble tile by Scrabble tile. Um, 
the Z goes by with a 10 on it, and then the A goes by with a one on it, and you're like, what's happening? Because as soon as you need an assistant, you're like, really? You can't pick up your mail? What? What, what happened to your day, King Farouk, that it became so rich with meeting with other emirs on golden rugs and drinking mint tea in the afternoon and making deals over Nearcos shipping lanes that you haven't time to pick up your mail? Jodie Foster, who I think is kind of a lunatic, but a superb actor, and certainly has every right to be a lunatic because she was a child star and had to play... Um, uh, uh, a sex worker in a movie when she was 13 that uh, Martin Scorsese directed. And I think you don't just deserve an Oscar for that. You deserve a lifetime show business achievement award for working with beardy older dudes when you're 13 and having to play that kind of role. In any case, Sam, she said once that she didn't have an assistant and, and they asked why Jody, you must be so busy with the uh, turning down scripts and, um, you know, looking at, uh, um, Panic Room 3, you know, the TV series and whatnot. And, you know, look, and she said, because picking up your mail and doing your dishes and stuff is your life. And I was mm -hmm. like, there's that, right? Uh, not that we all wouldn't want to have staff to come around and pick things up. But um, I don't know about you, but I don't mind actually, uh, I don't know, like putting my clothes away. I'd rather put them away and then I can lose them. Because I don't need an assistant to lose shit for me. I can quite cleverly lose stuff on my own. I don't know if you ever like go through your underwear and sock drawer and rearrange it and then come back to it and go, I have no idea where anything is now. And I did this like five minutes ago. And this isn't marijuana talking. It's just simply like the human brain. You compartmentalize everything and you're like, I don't need to remember that anymore because I think I'm going to. And then you're like, no, I'm not going to. And then, as A.A. A. Milne, who wrote Winnie the Pooh, and horribly, Now We Are Six, um, which Dorothy Parker, the wonderful wit and author, Dorothy Parker had a, a column in The New Yorker in the 20s called The Constant Reader. And she reviewed many of the good and great novels, but they gave her the assignment one week of reading A.A. A. Milne's Now We Are Six, which is a, a child's book. And Dorothy Parker's review in The New Yorker was Tonstant Weeder Fwoed Up, which is one of the great book reviews of all time. She also said, what was it? Um, uh, Gas smells awful, nooses give, guns aren't lawful, you might as well live. Um, right, and guys don't make passes at girls who wear glasses, except if the dames have good-looking frames. Uh, she was dead clever. I'm reaching towards something here, and when I find it, we're all going to jump back in. So I'm at the ophthalmologist. Uh, after I was going to go to Australia, and I says to my doctor, she says to me, your left eye is about to conk, right? Like the nerve in it's pretty shitty. She doesn't use the word shitty. She used a technical word like bad. And uh, I said to her doctor, uh, I said, uh, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. And... <laughs> No pill is going to cure my ill. Uh, what if you actually said that to a doctor? Have anyone ever turned to their doctor and said, doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. How great would that be? Um, most doctors have no sense of humor. Some do, even though they're Jewish. It's like Jewish lawyers. It's a real tough road. I've worked with a lot of them and they're really nice, but some of them. My doctor complained that his parents were still alive. Oh, right. Jennifer's doctor complained uh, to her. 
uh, and this was his complaint, that his parents were still living. I don't know if you're familiar with the religion of Judaism, but it's a double-edged sword. There's the, everything's, uh, everything's shitty, but there's not enough of it part of life. And then there's the, oh my God, I love my parents, but they're still alive. So, to me, uh, I says to her, doctor, uh, my eyes have seen the years and a slow parade of tears. Doctor, my eyes, right? If you, Jackson Brown, your doctor, you should be arrested. Because if Jackson Brown went to the doctor and turned and said, doctor, my eyes, um, that would be funny. I would laugh if I was Jackson Brown's doctor. Or if Jackson Brown came in and said, doctor, and then you were the doctor and you would say, um, your eyes. And then he'd be like, what? And then like, you're like your song, Jackson? Uh, first of all, if your first name's Jackson, wow. Shouldn't you be the capital of a state? And not... My only complaint about Jackson Brown is he wore flip-flops on stage in the 70s. Yeah, ooh is right. Don't ever, ever, ever come at me with flip-flops. But like I said, I saw the Eagles twice in the 70s at, at the Day on the Green in Oakland. I saw them, uh, and they brought on for guest stars, so this will give you a real good idea of what period of the 70s it was. One time when I saw them, they brought out Peter Frampton, so you know what year that was, and then one other year they brought out Elton John. So I have seen Peter Frampton and Elton John, but only for one shitty number with the Eagles. <laughs> and the Eagles wore t-shirts and jeans on stage because they're fucking keeping it real. And you think, if you're doing that much coke, shouldn't you have a hat? You need a hiding place. You can't wear a t-shirt and be that draggy. So... And, um, oh my God, some of their songs were so boring. You know, you've been high all day because, damn, they're in there like 20 groups. One time it was Loggins and Messina, Renaissance, Linda Ronstadt. I'm trying to, there was another band in there too, Renaissance. Linda Ronstadt wore a Cub Scout uniform. And, yeah, a Cub Scout uniform. And, um, I, I thought it was mine because uh, I had been a Weebelo. And uh, we, I remember we, we, we went toward the stage to see if we could get close up to get a good gander at Linda Ronstadt because she was hot stuff in those days. And then Loggins and Messina came out and whom I rem I've seen them. I remember nothing about them at all. I remember not what they looked like, what they sounded like, anything. Then the Eagles and Glenn Fry and whatnot. And as you know, Glenn Fry, God rest his soul. Um, when he passed, I didn't write this, just so you know, because I don't want to smoke a turd in purgatory, but, which is a Catholic thing. Uh, uh, one rock writer wrote about Glenn Fry. Now that Glenn Fry's dead, we can just say it. He was rock's biggest asshole. And, hey, by the way, I gave him a fulsome eulogy. I was in Glasgow, or Glasgow, yeah, I was at the Glasgow Festival, and I played fucking, um, I played a couple Glenn Fry songs, man. Hey, there's no, you can't deny the Eagles existed. You just have to accept it like the Big Lebowski. What is it? Well, it's another tequila sunrise. Uh, heading slowly across the sky. No vibrato. The days go by. Jennifer's holding her ears. He was just a hired hand. 
working on a thalamus gland he fried. And yet Don Henley. The days go right. Don Henley still persists. Except, okay, there you are. If you had to choose an eagle singer and you don't, you're going to pick Glenn Fry, I think, because Glenn Fry's voice was different. Than, Don Henley sings like this. On a dark desert highway, cooling in my hair, warm smell of colitis. Gross. <laughs> I don't even know what colitis is, but it's spelled like colitis, and I don't want the warm smell of it. And then when he, when he does the lines that are full of portent and shit, Don Henley will get all serious. Relax, said the nightman. We are programmed to receive. You can check out any time you like. And then close up of my eye. But you can never leave. What? Um, whereas Glenn Fry's uh, vocals tended to be a little more uh, just schlockitudinal. What was it? I like the way your sparkling earrings glow on your skin so brown. This this is a terrible line. It's so eagles. And I want to sleep with you in the desert tonight. What? Gross. You're rich. We're getting a hotel room, you cheap pisha. You cheap pisha. Four seasons are better. You're in the Eagles. Didn't you say one of these nights? Well, here we are. That was a Don Henley one. One of these crazy old nights. If there's one singer who does not evoke crazy old nights, I think Don Henley might be that guy. First of all, you live on Walden Pond. So shit's not going to get out of control. Uh... Glenn Fry, sadly, yes, he's quite dead. But the Eagles reformed again. Um, and their manager is notoriously still alive, by the way. And um, his name is Irving Azoff. And if you bought any albums in the 70s, you'd see his name all over the albums. Not like Walter Yetnikoff, who just swirled off into the heavens, who was a huge macha at CBS. And Walter Yetnikoff, we're coming back to Irving Azoff because I have something to say about Irving Azoff. We're going through the great Jews of the music industry, and that's what this show is going to be called there's tonight. A, is there time? Yeah, no, there's time. We're starting with Stephen Foster's manager, Chaim Solomon, and we're working our way forward. Walter Yetnikoff uh, had Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, and when he got Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen then did Born to Run. So that shit broke open. Uh, a lot of you are young and you don't know this. Now, you think of Bruce Springsteen as an old guy with receding hair who uh, is on car commercials and did that weird Obama thing. Did you ever even watch the Bruce Springsteen Obama thing? Talk about awkward. Talk about visiting a cousin you don't know what to say to and shit. Well, Bruce, uh, a lot of folks like your music. Um, I understand that you want me to strap my hands across your engines. And then Bruce would be like, oh, yeah. You know, uh, have you eaten? Well, I'm not neither, hungry. Neither of them has eaten. You want a, you want a beer or something? <laughs> you ever come home, President Obama, and your old man smoking a Lucky sitting at the kitchen table? My father was from Kenya. <laughs> anyway, is this the real time? It was awkward. 
and uh, Bruce Springsteen was on the cover of Time and Newsweek the same week that uh, Born to Run came out. And as teenagers, we were like, this is when magazines were a big deal. You go to the grocery store, wherever, a newsstand. We used to go to newsstands then to get cigarettes and shit. Yeah, we were underage. And uh, uh, there'd be all Time and Newsweek were right up front because they were the big life. There was still life. There was the redone life magazine went on. And it was picture him with like a, a, a New York Big Apple kind of Levi's cap and his beard going, all right. And, it, and you were like, we're, I lived on the West Coast. I'm from San Carlos, the widest place on earth. I'm going to play yoga festival. And we had the slightest notion of who Bruce Springsteen was. We were like, what is it? First of all, he has a beard. So we have the Grateful Dead. <laughs> we already know about that. And then, oh, no, he doesn't do that kind of music. And then when you finally heard a Bruce Springsteen song on the West Coast, but by the way, never that, you know, if you're from the East Coast, yeah. Like, my manager is from New Jersey because every manager in L.A. is from New Jersey, by the way. And my manager's from New Jersey. And he says to me, oh, Greg, I went to see that Springsteen show on Broadway. Unfucking believable It was the best fucking show I ever saw. I'm like, how much, how much was it? He goes, $2,000, but it was worth it. $2,000. To see Bruce Springsteen. I was like, look, Lee, come to my house. I'll give you a couple beers and I'll just go like this. Have all the sound for like three hours. Whatever it takes. I want the $2,000. Unbelievable. And then every once in a while, your papa don't know what he, what? How is it good? I think he's a nice person. I think he's a beautiful rock star. I just never got it. It was always so freaky to me. Or I guess she felt pretty superior with fucking Tower Power and shit. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of did. Because Tower Power was on heroin and had a bunch of Latin guys in the band. And Bruce Springsteen had one black dude in the band and relegated him to... And when they sang that fucking Santa Claus song, he would say to Clarence, Hey, Clarence, you've been real good. Santa Claus gonna bring you a new saxophone. If I was Clarence Clemens, I'd have been like, hey, fuck you. I don't believe in Santa Claus, you fucking dick. And how come you're not Jewish and your name's Springsteen? You're playing by rules I don't even fucking subscribe to. And no, Santa's not bringing me a sax. Why don't you fucking pay us, douche? We played Asbury Park. When you say we, me and my group, Deep Purple. And the place we played, I swear to you, is the one that's on the cover of the album, the Bruce Springsteen album, Greetings from Asbury Park. It's that, it's a building, it's on the beach, right? The boardwalk, which is horrible. If you've ever been to a beach in New Jersey, why not just stand in a gale force, tempest wind with a, a literally there was a, a, a seagull with tuberculosis just going, <laughs> it was horrible. Right? Like, just asthmatic dolphins and shit. <laughs> I, I walked down the shore, and uh, I went into the building, right? And it says, it's the Asbury Park one. And from my hotel room, I could see it. So I had to walk over to it. I went a nice lady. I gave her some uh, seditious sticker stuff. And, and all these people were playing there. And we played this room. And two things about the Asbury Park gig. Um... We died on our ass. If Dave Foley was with us that night, it was me, Joel, 
uh, Murray, Dave, Jeff Davis, and Dave Foley. And our dressing room was upstairs in the back of this weird fucking commodious venue that was clearly a music venue that I'm sure Bruce had played, right? And I, we had Italian food. Um, the official food of New Jersey is Italian food. But not just Italian food. Italian food that after you eat it, you go, oh, God. <laughs> and then when you go to bed that night, all you dream of is like... Uh, uh, um, uh, Dom DeLuise is chasing you with a giant purple invader like right like it's a very Italian nightmare oriented the heartburn that you get oh my god the agita like they invented agita giving it to people and why not so I'm out and back smoking a bone before the show and all these guys are like doing work and shit we start the show and it's a rock and roll venue so people are miles away and no one can fucking hear and we're doing improv so the show kind of limps along. They don't even know who Foley is. They're fucking from New Jersey. They're like, what is he, some kind of gay guy from Canada? And we get to the end, and we bring a cat out of the audience to sing, uh, to tell a story with us, which is an improv game where you point at them and everybody has to tell the story in turn. And this guy's a real mook, right? Uh, like a proper Jersey dude. Uh, I can't remember what his name was, but I'm sure it was something, you know, Roger or Mike or something. Something that indicated um, abject and intrinsic heterosexuality. <laughs> and this guy gets up and we point the thing at him and did fuck me if we didn't turn the story into a Bruce Springsteen thing. Then the lyrics started coming out. Then we started singing. And then we closed with fucking Born to Run. And, oh yeah, we did. Shameless. So we had been limping along. Literally, the audience was sitting back like this with their arms folded, like they were at a Pittsburgh Penguins game. And we get to this fucking last thing, and it says, it's a death trap, it's a suicide rap. You better get out while you're young. Cause tramps like us, well, oh, 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 right, on and on. And this guy's fucking singing with us. And we end and our Bob Durkash drops in and playing fucking spring scene and shit. Whoa, oh, 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 the fucking place stands up. We were dying on our ass. And these people who were sparsely around the stadium fucking got up and fucking, yes, this fucking comedy show, these fucking guys. They loved it. They forgot about an hour and a half of nothing because we sang Springsteen at the end of an improv show. So I go back to my room and I'm starving. And I think, I'll order a pizza. What else what does one do in New Jersey? In Asbury Park in the middle of the night. It's probably 11-ish. So there's a pizza place nearby, you know, Gwingo's or, you know, Skadoonch, Uncle, Uncle Skadish, hey. And, uh... <laughs> I'll have the uh, Veal magazine and uh, let me have some of the Kama Tachombe. And, uh, hey, what are you looking at? Hey, you fucking who gots? And, um, so I calls over and, oh, no, no, right? Because it's now. No more calling a pizza parlor and a guy goes, hey, Vito's, what do you want? And you go, I'll have the pepperoni and, you know, a gallon of Coke and 15 mozzarella sticks. And do you have any, um, uh, crank? And, you know, it's Jersey, so yeah, let me get on that. No, that doesn't happen anymore. I don't know if you you live in the world. We live in the Postmates, Chow Now, Uber Eats, whatever world, where you never get a regular person on the phone anymore. So I call, and I sound like Steve Allen now. In my day, we used to send the carrier pigeon over, 
and they would the Aeschylus would whip something up uh, I rings the place and they I all of a sudden I'm sent into a you know uh, or I think I got online because they didn't even they wouldn't answer their phone it was like you need to um, go online if you want to order so I go online I order and very simple order you know pepperoni pizza two gallons of Sprite and uh, I, I was joking about that but thank you for accepting that I would drink two gallons of Sprite and I don't even know if I've had a Sprite I think I did I've had one before if you mix them as uh, they used to say with uh, Klonopin I think that really kicks a, kicks a Klonopin in like Fanta Orange and Valium uh, so I, I orders my pizza and the phone rings my phone rings and I thought oh okay right what and it's like on the phone like Hangzhou China so I'm like well this is interesting I haven't been called from China in a while so I'm like hello and a woman comes on and goes is this Gregory Proops so I know they don't know when someone's Gregory, either they're my uncle because only members of my family call me Gregory uh, and it only has two syllables by the way you think it has three because it's spelled with three but in my family it's Gregory uh, is this Gregory Proops and I'm like yes and the woman had a distinct um, Chinese uh, cast to her main mean and uh, uh, she's like is this such and such your, your credit card and I'm like tis and she's like I'm just checking mind you this is a pizza order I didn't order Krugeran from Belgium to be brought over by Don Johnson in a, De in a DeLorean. I didn't order letters of credit from Magellan so I could take a trip around the globe from the Hanseatic League. This isn't me ordering from Bernard Baruch so I could invade Poland or whatever. This isn't Germany gearing up for the Spanish Civil War. I ordered a fucking pizza. It cost, what, $21 or something? So I'm like, yeah, this is mine. She's like, fine, and then hangs up. And then I realize... Whatever company I've gone through to order online at a, at a place that's literally three blocks from my hotel has gone to China and back to call me to check on my card. So I'm like, I just hope they're not making it in China and sending it over because I'm on the Atlantic coast and it's going to take for fucking ever to go around the horn. So it comes... And I want the story to end like this. God, it was great. It was one of the best pizzas I ever had. But you know how this fucking story ends. The poor put-upon guy came, who's a third-party, you know, dude. He showed up at my hotel room. Uh, I invited him in. I was wearing this uh, kind of taffeta, you know, like it. I had foam mantlers on, and I was covered with raspberry preserves. And I said to him, would you like to come in? Because it's an all-you-can-eat situation. And he was like, nay, nay, whatnot. So reluctant. And, um, you know, what happened to Amity and, and comedy and brotherhood? Comity. Comity and brotherhood. So uh, he comes to the door and I give him some money and he's, oh, thanks, man. And he splits. And the pizza was just like, what? You didn't cook it? Um, fantastically, we were in Fairbanks, Alaska. And, uh, which I kind of preferred to Anchorage. It was just, Fairbanks was like being like at a meth dealer's garage. And that was like the whole city. It was a beautiful theater. And of course, salmon. 
I don't know if you like salmon, but Alaska's not hurting for, and never feel bad about ordering fur or salmon in Alaska. I'm going to check my mic. <laughs> they had um, polar bear hands at the airport. And we put them on, and they were like gloves, right? But they had taken a polar bear and taken its hands off of it. And spoiler alert, I didn't hey, trigger warning. Evidently, people are getting all upset. Yeah. Look, if it's a, it, the polar bear and you, and you're out in the wild, you, you may want to put its hands on to keep your hands warm. They had it at the airport. It wasn't like I killed the fucking polar bear. So let's just get that straight. I'm not taking a lot of blame for this. And, and this is the best part of the Fairbanks airport, and I know Kevin will back me up on this because he's probably been there, that the polar bear hands were on those 80s bicycle chains, the kind that are covered with plastic, but is a horrible metal thing inside that you link. You know, it's got the, the two loops and then you put a, a padlock on it. Those are what they were on because I guess if people were like trying them on and then going at the airport, mind you, you've already gone through security to get to this gift shop. Um, hey, may I try on those polar bear um, hands? Yeah. And then you put them on and you're like, fuck you. And let's just fucking take off and shit. Just make a polar bear run for the Arctic Circle. Like, who's stealing two gigantic things that are the size of, you know, pillows? So they chained them to the counter so we didn't steal them. And Bob, Durkatch, and I, have both of us have pictures of us wearing. But we put on all the various uh, gloves. Really? You're that? This is just an Alaska story. If one can't get into the spirit of... Did anyone see the Harrison Ford Call of the Wild? Me neither. But I would have. <laughs> Harrison Ford's Call of the Wild. <laughs> Buck. <laughs> Mush. So we get in on the first night and it's pissing snow or whatever the word is. And we get to the crib and the crib wasn't promising, but hey, it was warm. And there was a liquor store around the corner, which um, Joel and Morgan walked to, oh. which I was real excited about. because so I went outside to smoke a joint and they found me the next morning dead. They, you know who they found the next morning? Jack Nicholson from The Shining. That's who they found when they... I went outside for four minutes to smoke a joint, and I was found like this. <laughs> Just frozen in the fucking overlook hedges. And so, they come and they... Uh, oh, here, you know, so I'll go to the room. And I, uh, and by the way, Alaska's like on Hawaii time. It's like three hours earlier than some, than the wet, you know, like what? You're, there's so many rules. You have to call the Russians if you want to eat. If you turn a light on, you have to ask a harbor seal and shit. There's, like, there's all this shit. Um, and no northern lights because the sky was clouded over. So I, I, I had been, I was completely there for the Aurora Borealis. And it, it they, and they said you could see it. Uh, but like, oh, yeah, it's pretty cloudy tonight. And like, we're here for two nights. Can't you arrange something? 
can't you sacrifice a narwhal or whatever it is you do to make the skies clear? So, and by the way, there was a place, the next city down the road on the freeway was um, the North Pole. And the theme of the city of the North Pole was that Santa Claus lives there. And I thought, if he lives off a freeway near a meth um, hut, you know, the, the, the toy workshop, no wonder they get so much shit done. Because they've got legalized weed and they got meth and shit. And there's no distractions because there's like three women. Uh, and there's elk and moose and, and uh, there's a vendetta against the animals of Alaska. The people of Alaska have elected to shoot and fish every animal there because um, evidently there's some danger. There's more animals than people. Well, than white people. Also, I saw things that I hadn't seen in a long time there, like, um, you know, goiters and eye patches and stuff. There was, Alaska had a real, it was salty. It was salty. It was like being press ganged onto a, a, a clipper ship at the turn of the lot, like a steam packet in the 1830s. Next thing, yeah, be, as they would have said so racistly in the old days, Shanghai. Whoa. Yeah, whoa, whoa. Haven't you already had a pizza story? So, this is my second pizza story. Uh, there's no phoning anything in Fairbanks. There's no more nightlife, in fact. There are saloons. And then we were told that there used to be nightclubs that had live entertainment, and they've all gone by the wayside because of a satellite television. And by the way, outside my window, I saw crows the size of turkeys doing skidding albatross landings on the tundra. Outside the window of my motor hotel was a, like a field of tundra and crows that were literally the size of small wolves were just hitting it and skidding down the fucking ice. It was pretty wild. So I goes to my room and I get on my computer. And um, by the way, uh, the internet works in Fairbanks. Hello, Kentucky. Um, yeah, hello, Tennessee, Arkansas. I'm looking at you. Uh, and I go to the pizza. There's a pizza parlor. There's a few. So I order, you know, again, five gallons of Fresca and uh, the, the dipping sticks, whatever they're called. I love those. What are the ones that are dough and they're filled with uh, cheese? Like there are so many things that literally you would never make or eat in your life. But suddenly this pizza place offers it to you and everybody's like, hey, who wants deep fried lard puffs? Uh, so I got a pepperoni pizza. I got a salad because, you know, look what I'm doing. Keeping my hand in. Uh, I wanted to remain amongst the living. I also ordered, thank you for that raspberry. I ordered um, a couple of Cokes and a brownie, whatever they had, you know. Because what the fuck, we're in, we're in Fairbanks. Nothing else is coming tonight. So this is it, right? Live it up. Um, and I order online and then five minutes later my phone rings and I'm like oh no I know it's going to be fucking China <laughs> right except we're in Alaska so maybe it's like Irkutsk or something so I pick up the phone and the guy's like is this Greg and I'm like yeah and he's like this is Dean from over at you know Scabiano's Pizza I'm like how you doing he's like uh, we just wanted to know did you want a medium 
can of Coke or the regular can of Coke? Like, this is a fine distinction. I'll have the regular. Okay. And then I thought, you you just called me because you saw it was me. (laughs) And that made me happy. Because whatever he asked me was completely nonsensical. Like, on your salad, do you want, like, dressing in a plastic thing that's in the box? Or do you want the dressing in a plastic thing um, that's in the box? (laughs) There's no, you know, what are the, really, what are we quibbling over on a pizza order at Fairbanks in the middle of the night? So uh, I got the pizza. And by the way, better than New Jersey in that case. And I watched, and this is how reduced my state was. But I wouldn't say reduced my state. I would say this is called acclimatizing yourself to where you are and letting it wash over you like you've been uh, thrown in the, um, the Huskow in Marbella or something for some petty crime like jewel thievery. You're going to have to get used to your cellmates and you're going to have to smoke filterless cigarettes. You have to make a lot of choices. So when you're in Fairbanks in the middle of the night, uh, turn on the TV, not a lot, you know, full cable assortment, but as, as you often know on television, not so much to watch. Sex in the City too. Yeah, you heard me. <laughs> I totally, no, on TCM, not so great. If only, right? Hello, I'm Ben Mankiewicz. You know, there's been so many great franchises in women's movies history. Sister Act 1, Sister Act 2. But tonight... We're presenting a movie that the first one was such a hit they thought they'd revisit these characters again. Charlotte, Samantha, and the other ones. I watched Sex in the City too, and no matter how racist, um, like I don't know if you watched the Republican convention that took place at the White House last year, however bad that was where they had the, 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 the two felons from St. Louis who shot people in their bare feet or wanted to, and they portrayed them as some, you know, uh, Paul Revere and uh, Samuel Dawes on their fateful ride through the New England night. Uh, they, th- however racist that was, Sex in the City 2 is more racist. Yes. It's just awesomely racist. Yep. It's like listening to someone. It's like Robin Williams' character from Aladdin reading the Arabian Nights. <laughs> and... Uh, Mind you, I was in Star Wars The Phantom Menace, which had some fairly questionable... I didn't write the script, you guys, but wow. There was uh, Asiatic characters that went, we must stop a Jedi, like that. And then there was Jar Jar Binks, and the less said about that, wow. So there was some exciting shit in that. Um, Yeah, outside of a Tarzan movie, I don't think you're really going to... So I, I ate my pizza and I fucking loved, I was stoned. I'm like, you know what? People got this movie all wrong. <laughs> I don't think it's racist. I just think it's from a white privilege point of view. What about the Sam Neill movie in Australia? It was a fine motion picture. And I shall touch upon it in a moment. So I'm at the eye doctor and uh, she says to me, I go, I got to go to Australia and I and she's like, yeah, your eye's about to fail. And I'm like, but I, I have to, I'm literally going to Australia next week. And she went, well, go to Australia. <laughs> and I'm like, so what? There's like a an out? There's a, a loophole? Your eyes, the nerve in your eye is about to fail. But if you have to go to Australia for two weeks, just go. 
So that's my advice to you. If something terrible happens to your eye, say to your eye doctor, and these they're like, we have to rush you into surgery. Be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I gotta go to Australia. And they'll go, oh, oh, go to Australia. <laughs> she gave me a load of pills. So then finally I come back and I get the operation, right? It was a cataract surgery. And uh, I'm not complaining, everyone's had much worse. But I'm getting, I'm in my gown. And then when you have eye surgery, they don't give you anything good because it's your eye. So you can't fall asleep, right? Like any other part of your body, they're gonna knock you out. But like LL Cool J. Uh, but they're not, mama said not to knock you out with the eye surgery. So my doctor pulls up and he goes, another doctor pulls up and goes, I'm Dr. Berlin. And I'm like, well, that's completely unacceptable. There was a lot of proofs in the 30s in the old country I had to deal with your type. And I'm not really, and he's like, I'm your anesthesiologist and I'm gonna give you a mild anesthetic. And I said, then that's not anesthesiology. You have failed anesthesiologist because you've put the modifier mild in front of anesthetic. And next to non-alcoholic wine, there's never been a more disappointing phrase than mild anesthetic. You mean I'm not gonna be high and it'll still hurt? So the answer is yes, by the way. Because I've had other eye surgeries and they gave me uh, like oxy, like not just oxy, but like oxy that had a picture of Mariah Carey on it, like like stamped on it. You know, it was like one side was a stiletto heel and the other side was her like running uh, in the butterfly video. So those were strong. Uh, when it has when it when it comes in a packet that says Courtney Love Vitamins. Thanks for laughing at my awesomely sexist 90s drug jokes. It was a specialty of mine for quite a long time, and early 2000s. So, uh, uh, yeah, I took my, I had my awful mild anesthetic, and yes, I felt uh, the operation take place in my eye, and I started at one point, and my head was taped to the table, by the way, much like the movie Clockwork Orange. And uh, the doctor says to me, um, oh, are you okay? And I was like, you know what? I've had better mornings. I mean, I remember a time in Seattle, I had like salmon and eggs for breakfast. That was a pretty good morning. Jennifer and I had uh, blood orange juice and espressos and, um, on, a, on a, a balcony in Capri. That was a good morning. Mm -hmm. The morning where blood shut out my eye and I had a mild sedative. Not as fucking great as those mornings. I'm, if you're making me make a value judgment about what's okay and what's not okay. Where was the... Uh... Sam Neill. Oh, the Sam. Movie. So, <laughs> because we're, it's the middle of August, normally at this time I would be inhabiting Edinburgh, which is a small principality. Uh, Scotland is a, a pathetic pseudo-nation that lies above England. And they failed in their chance four years ago to remove themselves from the, the United Squingdom of Greg Bretagne. And uh, they just barely, like when Quebec failed, uh, although Quebec was even closer, I believe that was 51 to 49%. Scotland was like 53, 47, to devolve, as they call it. 
which would have made them a country with about the same population as Norway or one of the Scandi countries. And by the way, Scotland's pretty Scandi in that way. And they have their own oil. So they would have had that Norway thing going on where like they could have told the EU to get fucked. Because Norway's not in the EU, by the way. You go to Scandia, uh, Sweden, whatever, Ireland, whatever, Spain, it's, oh, there's an EU symbol in the thing in the EU, and uh, Belgium, you know, oh my God, we're in the EU. Yeah, I know, you've only got that in muscles. But when you go to Norway, there's like no customs, no, no passport control. You walk off the plane and they're like, hey, and that's it, and you're in Norway. Uh, by the way, nothing exciting happens after that. I wasn't mobbed by giant people, although they are everywhere. And as, as Jennifer once said so brilliantly, Norwegians do leathery better than almost any country in the world. <laughs> they all look <coughs> as if they've taken a long boat to Vineland and back. And it only took like three weeks because Norwegians are that big and that hard. By the way, the Vikings took everybody with them. That whole Viking thing, I know you like the TV show and you've seen the football team. But the Vikings brought people from the Baltic. There was always Latvians and, uh, uh, and Danes. Um, they, they took Ireland early, right? Ireland was a big poachy for the, for the Vikings. And that's why it's called Dublin. Dublin means black pool in Scandi. In Danish, I think it is. It's, it's Dublin or some horrible thing. Um, and so Scotland would have had that going on. They would have been a separate country. They could have asked English people for their passport when they got off the train, which would have been awesome because Scottish people would have loved that more than life itself to actually patrol the border and go like, what, see your ID. Yeah, dust, king, yeah. Like they'd have just been horrible to English people. And then if you'd gone like, it's an, I'm American, they'd have gone, oh, it's our Greg. You go on through there, yeah. Big love, big love, mate, big love. I've had nothing but good times in Edinburgh and nothing but love from the... I've had people yell big love at me from windows in Edinburgh. I've had cab drivers who were horrible to everyone go, oh, it's out of Craig. What are you going in at me? And then and they'll take you down anyway. Oh, I'm going down the Leith. The Leith. And then last year, two years ago, we're going down the mound, the mound, the mound, and... uh there's a, a guy on the side being a complete dickwad, screaming. He's wearing a hat. Like shirt the fringe. Yeah. The, what was he wearing? Shirt off. Yeah, it is shirt off. The fringe is a madhouse, and the mound is way between Princess Street and then up the hill is all these other venues in the old town. So people, it's hugely crowded. It's like Hong Kong crowded, and the taxis just stacked, and you're just trying to get down this hill. But you want to take a cab because walking up it is a bit of a hike and walking down it's a bit of a hike. You can do it. It's fun. But anyway, we're in the cab because we're going somewhere. And um, this dude's like, whoop, whoop, on the side of the road. And the cab driver turns and goes, by the way, um, he's not just here for the festival. He's a perennial asshole. A perennial asshole. And then we get in another cab and he's like, oh, I... I had Ian Banks on the cab. I mean, uh, Ian, um, Rankin. Uh, Ian Rankin, right? Inspector Rebus, who I've met because Edinburgh is small. So I have a buddy and he went to a book thing and there was Ian Rankin. Jennifer's met him too. We, we met him a few times. Nice cat. Loves punk rock and all that. If you ever meet Ian Rankin, just ask him about the slits or something and then you're off to the races. Um, and uh, he... Uh, the cabbie says to us, Oi, I've got Ian Rankin in the cab. I said, I read all your books. 
Um, uh, why did you change the name of the street, mate? I know every name of every fucking street in Edinburgh. And it's not fucking purchase that comes off the haymarket. And he's got an author in the cab and he's like, and what about that street? It's not the name. And you're like, you're actually calling him out on the names of the streets that he uses? It's fiction. <laughs> Inspector Rebus isn't, a, if you call for him down the station, they're going to laugh at you. There, there's been a murder and I need Taggart. There's been fool play. <laughs> fool play, I says. <laughs> Web of nastiness. So, <laughs> we're always in Edinburgh this time of year, right around now, August 13th. In fact, yesterday was the glorious 12th, which is a big day in Edinburgh because, as one Scottish person put it to me, it's traditionally the day when we go out and beat the bushes to flush out gross for our betters. <laughs> Rich people of the countryside would make the people of the surrounding area of Scotland go out and beat the hedgerows with sticks and howl so that grouse would be flushed and then they would bird them, you see. So when you would eat grouse subsequent to the 12th, which if you go to a restaurant, all of a sudden everybody's got grouse on the menu. And yes, it looks just like it does on the whiskey bottle. And the famous grouse. Uh... The, the, uh, when you get it, it's a small turkey-like affair. And uh, Jennifer, I remember, was eating it one year. She got it. And all of a sudden, oh, 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 fucking bird shot. Just fantastic, right? And you're like, um, oh, waiter. <laughs> you'll find my name is Walter. There's birdshot in my grouse. Well, don't be waving it about. <laughs> or everyone will want a shot. It's not extra. <laughs> it's a place where cabbies will argue with you. You get in a cab and you'll go, like, I want to go Cotton Hill. And they'll go, well, it's just a wee bit down the road. <laughs> you, can, you can walk it. You can leg it. Like, I, I'm hiring you to take me. Does that convince you? <laughs> this isn't like I asked you to drive me because you're my friend and shit. I'm not asking you to move a fridge into my house. I'm asking you to drive me to Carlton Hill because I want to fucking go there. Now I've forgotten the where we were. The, the story you were prompting me to... Was it a pizza? No. <laughs> I, was, I mentioned Sam Neill. Oh, yeah, I. So we had this really cute flat down there, Queen Street. and Because um, you rent a flat for the festival, which I got early on Caught the Drift. As a performer, um, the people who produce the festival will put you in any type of flat because they don't think of you as a human. So I remember <laughs> staying in a flat where the guy had, like, beer signs everywhere and tins of beans. That lasted about a night before I was like, um, I'm a person and I need love, like Morrissey. <laughs> <laughs> but not like Morris. Just like anybody else does. I'm a human. I need love. Um. So, uh, I I made friends with the woman who lets the flats, 
And uh, so I ring her or I email her and I'm like, I'm coming and I need a flat. And she sends me a bunch of flats and goes like these are. And so I've always thought lately got a lot of good ones. So this was a cute one and it didn't have a shower. It only had a tub. And I wrote her and I'm like, I want one with a shower. Finally, after the fifth email and other people at the agency had been dealing with, she emails me and she's like, Greg, take the one with the fucking tub. I'm begging you. (laughs) So we did. All it means is when you get up in the morning, when you know you think you're going to do the, my ship has sails, you know, right? I'm bounding through the night, right? You're going to shower and shit. Uh-uh. Instead, it's waiting 10 minutes and then getting in the tub. And then, of course, the scrubbing off part after the tub where you're like, now I really need a shower. And, um, but a great giant tub and the window didn't open. Oh, the window opened, but there was a block of wood to keep it open. So that awesomeness. And I remember we, I was smoking weed, but I would smoke it out the back and blow it out. And of course it would come blowing back in because the wind blew off the fucking first, the fourth back through the flat. And the, the lady upstairs was very prim and all. And she comes uh, down the staircase and she goes, I smelled marijuana and you had a flat last night. And Jennifer's wearing her motorcycle jacket and her boots and goes, really? Well, the door hasn't fucking worked in two weeks or whatever. And the woman goes, and like ran away. Uh, and we're one night, we're back out for the show and we're back at the flat and we're watching some fine Scottish cable. And by the way, there's like four stations in Scotland and one of them is Puffins. It's just flightless birds flinging themselves off a rock to kill the pain of having to live in the Hebrides. There is a channel called the Gaelic whatever, and they do show shows in Gaelic, which is great fun to watch. And nobody speaks Gaelic, obviously. I mean, a few people do. It's like the news in Welsh or whatever. When you're in Wales and you listen to the radio, Radio Cymru, they love it now, Wales is good fun, too. Uh, I'll put many... Car- Cardiff? Mm. Yeah, right. So, it was a, a, there's a picture we're watching, and it was a thriller. And I use the word thriller because that's how it was described on the TV. It actually had no thrills. One of those movies where uh, it's like watching a balloon never take off, and white people just get frustrated until they throw the bags overboard and nothing happens. Uh, those movies that are full of inertia... And it was with Sam Neill and Susan Sarandon, yeah. And then a bunch of people you've never heard of who I assume were Aussie TV stars or New Zealand TV stars. And uh, uh, something happened and someone died and then they had to figure it out. But Sam Neill, as we discovered while we were watching the movie, because we looked it up, has a winery in New Zealand. You may have seen him on Twitter. He has sheeps wandering around and whatnot. And he quite enjoys marijuana and wine. So this movie had this kind of energy. Sam Neill would come into a scene and be like, there's been a murder. <laughs> and Susan Strand would go, I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> we better call the 
Please. <laughs> I mean, it was a, it, it was that stoned. It was the stonedest. I can't for the life of me think of it. You can look it up. You got an algorithmic. You look it up backwards. No, I don't want you to watch it. Uh, although there's some great overacting at the end by some of the lesser actors in the cast. Why well, I, I did it and I had to. Oh no, I'm not doing the right accent, but I'll spare you. The other day I did an accent. Um, yesterday we did this benefit for um, uh, get, try, try to get rid of Ron DeSantis and uh, Colin Mockery and Ryan Styles. Ron, you, got, you, you guys missed that one, but you saw this one. And um, I started to do an accent and Ryan went, what country are you doing? And I was like, you know what, country? Um, uh, fuck you, Istan, I think was the name of it. He's the one to talk. Right, he is the one to talk. Ryan's accents, whoa. Um, here's what Ryan does best. Hey, hey Phil. Um, after that, good morning, my friend. Hello, my friend. And then... Oh, we can all do each other. It's quite horrible. <laughs> Although, no one does me as well as I do me, of course. But Joel, Joel just kind of... Well, hey, Prips, old boy. Let's go. Why are you drinking whiskey, Joel? Well, by changing the color of the alcohol is how we mark the passing of the seasons. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and by the way, we're on the road again in September. So if uh, you uh, uh, wish us luck, we're going to Iowa. And then um, later we're going to Florida where they have a, um, an anti-human ordinance. Uh, the governor of Florida decided that um, everyone should die and no one should ever want to go to Florida again. So uh, they're building a wall of conch fritters that they're hiding behind. And my understanding is, uh, yeah, they're, they're not doing a lot to stop the, uh, the plague there. So we're supposed to play there in December. And... Uh, my guess is we're going to play a small manatee island off the coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, called it's it's called um, Kerouac Cove. It's <laughs> for middle aged. <laughs> Kerouac had a crib down near Orlando uh, where he drank. I don't know how productive he was there. I don't think he was writing at that point. But the house is still a house, um, as Bert Bacharach said. Uh, <laughs> A chair is still a chair, even if Jack Kerouac's not sitting there. But a chair is not a house. And um, I'm looking forward to going down there. Uh, but I, I'm a trepidatious about some of the places we're going because of the, the um, terrible latitude that they've given the plague. Um, one can't help but believe, and this might be the boring preachy part, okay. that it's not a... Oh, great. That it's not a matter of... Um, Oh, thank goodness. Um, it's not a matter of uh, uh, pragmatism or anything like that. Uh, if you wanted people to believe the same fairy tale over and over again, it's easy. Um, look at Christianity or you know Islam or anything, any belief system. There's so many uh, tenditious lies and contradictory thoughts going through all of it that there's really no way to justify the through of it. So it's not a matter of that people believe, and by the way, um, 45 was reinstalled today at noon. I don't know if anyone caught that. Uh, yeah, uh, the My Pillow guy shook a box of good and plenty um, over a goldfish bowl and that made it happen again. 
Um, the craziness is one, the point, and two, what keeps them going. The fact that it didn't happen doesn't mean that they don't believe it anymore. The fact that it didn't happen is even more proof that all the forces are lined up against you. Um, and therefore, that's how that works. So we get to that part, right? We all understand that there's no changing their minds because they haven't made up their mind anyway. They're already believing something so inconceivably and irretrievably untrue that the, the lie of it is overwhelmingly exciting and keeps you going uh, in the face of every uh, of all incontrovertible proof. But then there's that other part where you think, well, certainly... Uh, as Bill Hicks once said about Judas Priest, um, Judas Priest, they were blaming Judas Priest records for teenagers killing themselves. And Bill Hicks would go, do you think Judas Priest had a meeting and went, I'm tired of it. The touring, the women, the drugs. What if? <laughs> right? How do we get rid of our fans one by one? Let's put Satan's message on. They'll play it backwards and die. So... Yeah. It seems counterintuitive uh, for governors of so many states to go like, no, we're not going to have masks and I'm not going to encourage anyone to vaccinate themselves. And in fact, I'm going to say that it's trammeling our freedom and that it's some terrible abrogation of our compact that we have with the Constitution where white people are allowed to whine about everything, but never, ever make a decision for the common good. Whether it's an infant child or an invalid rolling along in their wheelchair or an iron lung with two legs sticking out of the bottom of it, wheeling around like in a Warner Brothers cartoon. At no point does anyone else's case enter into your mind because you're busy wearing reflective shades and a gimme cap that says, uh, here we don't call 911. And uh, that's the part that's hard for all of us to get our mind around. That there are so many people that dwell and bathe in um, the destruction of other people. And uh, that other people's mortality is of no matter to them. Some of them go, as you've noticed, uh, and the thorough media scrutiny of this, uh, to their deathbed proclaiming that they don't have the thing they're dying of. Which is um, the ultimate in doublethink, really. And... Doesn't I don't think we need to get hung up on it proving a big point. I think it's how people are. Um, you've heard of Chicken Little, and, you, and you've heard of reality. And uh, I think a lot of people would rather live in that world. And it's, sometimes it's not a choice for them because of how they are. And other times it's certainly a choice for them. For instance, all the churches that are pushing this, um, that's a real, um, as you might think, it's an apposite view. If the church is supposed to be about helping one another and peace and love and humanity and being all for people living, then one would think that promoting um, safe practices and um, the mir literal miracle of science that we've been dealt. Um, women have been working on this cure for 20 years and it accelerated in the last few years and they were able in the face of this gigantic maw of oblivion to come up with something so extraordinary. And then in America, in the midst of the Nazi takeover, still be able to vaccinate every single person for free. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 something million people who aren't vaccinated yet. And that's what we're getting at. Uh, in, in the face of that miracle to actually look at that and go like, mm -mm, that's not what Jesus wants. Jesus wants me to be unhappy. But then we all know how it feels like 
say you have a tooth loose or there's a part of your thumb that hurts, you can't stop touching it and you can't stop making yourself hurt. And to stop it would be to admit that something's going on and you need to take care of it. And that's where we're at in a terrible metaphorical sense. Um, the pain and the horror of wanting to do harm to other people as a way of uh, expressing your personality because you don't have one because the pain is so intense for you that you can't actually get over that. Um, there's this whole call lately by a lot of the white media that we're supposed to sympathize with them and not make them feel stupid and include them in our reindeer games and sort of cajole them along into getting the vaccine. And I'm not really part of that camp anymore. I'm all for anybody who has a conversion. Hooray. Um, as for spending time convincing people, I do it all the time. I try to keep a positive spin on everything. I want everyone to live. Um, but as far as expending emotional energy, worrying about them and stuff like that, <clears throat> that's where I found that uh, there was someone who posed this question on the interweb the other day. What have you found out about yourself during uh, the last year or two of the plague? And um, what I found out about myself was that I hate white people even more than I did. <laughs> I hated them before. Uh, during the Reagan years, during the Nixon years. I hate, I've hated them since I was a kid. Uh, but now I hate them even more because they want to go to Sturgis and because they want to be governors of Florida and because of all the things that white people are doing. It's really not a recommendation. And you can hit me with the all, not all white people, but it's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and if you go back historically, I think you'll find the ones with the powdered wigs and the ones with the big mustaches and long beards that were wearing the gray uniforms, they were much doing the same thing. It wasn't different at any point. Um, the acceptance of science has ebbed and flowed. But let's be honest, um, when Charles Dickens came to America in the 1840s to read from his books, he'd been serialized in a lot of magazines. And Americans knew quite well his work because they were following it literally week by week, uh, chapter by chapter. That's how they were getting it. So they were all hepped up to get the next chapter of Charles Dickens' novels and whatnot. And he said that he came here and that before the show, people would start stamping and singing Yankee Doodle and that everyone spat on the floor and people brought food with them from home and threw it. And he lost his shit because he was used to playing England. <laughs> and he was like... People are spitting and screaming, and he goes, in the middle of the show, everyone would all of a sudden go like, Yankee Doodle, keep it up, Yankee Doodle, Yankee. like in the 1840s, you guys. And he was like, I didn't know you were going to do that. I'm a little bit scared of it. Um, his recollections of touring America are like, okay, what? Now, Oscar Wilde took it in hand, and when he went to visit the miners in Colorado, um, he drank them under the table in an all-night session and witticized them and flirted with them so hard that they took him down in the mine and shit, and they loved him. Mind you, he was six foot three wearing a velvet suit with a, a flower in his lapel at that point with long hair. Um, but I think if you can drink miners down, and by the way, I mean miners, because literally no miners will be harmed in the telling of this story, nor will any miners be admitted. Uh, in other words, I think we always have to reach out. And as I always say, um, forgive everything, forget nothing. Um, I remember who did the wrongs here. And I, this is the thing I'm getting at in my long ass point here, which is this. Uh, the media and whatnot, the mainstream media and the general drift of things will always give you this sort of uh, it can't be helped white guy narrative uh, that th this is just how things are. And oh, gee whiz. And uh, 
I just don't think that's a, a, that coherent of a viewpoint to take. This isn't two equal sides fighting it out. They'll say controversial stance by the governor of Texas or embattled governor of Florida takes on all comers but still raises money and stuff like that. Or uh, the huge polarizing differences in the country. None of that is true. 29% of the country are stark, raving, fucking batshit crazy. They have taken it upon themselves to convince themselves that wearing a mask is somehow giant affront, even though all the things they were asked to do, that their fathers and mothers were asked to do, like march for civil rights, like go to Vietnam, like their grandparents were asked to do, fight in Korea, fight in World War II, go on rationing, gather uh, stuff from the neighborhood for the war effort, to actually make real sacrifices. If you're from the 80s and you remember when AIDS was a plague and we watched all of our friends and comrades and everyone in the arts perish from something that no one seemed to be looking for a cure for for 10 years until finally they slowed the brakes on that one a little. And what they've done in one year, by the way, since we had SARS, which was what, five, seven years ago, they've been able to perfect something that you can take. People are willfully believing that won't happen and that they don't, not only that, that they don't need to do it and that by not doing it, they're sticking it to you and making a huge point. And that's what we're talking about here. It isn't two equal sides. It isn't two um, opposing viewpoints. It isn't uh, one side is really, you know, they know it. They just believe what they believe, man. Um, no, what they believe is starkly, dramatically, irrevocably, and unfathomably wrong and will stand the test of time as being wrong. If you are lucky enough to live another 10, 20, 30 years, you will look back on this moment and be like, there was raging madness, not just all here, but all over the world, but particularly that special kind of American madness where instead of every day, the top story on the news being the governor of Texas and the governor of Florida are raving homicidal maniacs and we need to stop it right now. Instead of that being the headline, the headline is, oh, hospitalizations rose in Florida yesterday and the governor of Florida has raised $8 million from his base really responds to his type of politics. Um, that's what I'm talking about. Anyway, what can you do? Live your bloody life. Try to be safe. Be nice to other people. Wear your bloody mask. Um, be kind to people. I'm going to tell one last story and then we'll move off into this good night. Uh, a very lovely person um, swirled off into the stars this week um, named J.R. Richard. He was a pitcher. He pitched for the Houston Astros. And uh, I had a chance, and Jennifer had a chance to meet him at the Negro League Museum Hall of Game a couple, three, four years ago. And um, he was a giant of a man. He was six foot eight. And he grew up in a very small town in Louisiana. And I asked him on stage, um, how many high schools scouted you? I mean, how many colleges scouted you when you were in high school? He was a six foot eight pitcher. At one point, I think he won 90 games in a row or something. I mean, for real, no one could hit him. And he was a little wild. Not only could he throw the ball 100 miles an hour, he wasn't altogether certain where it was going sometimes. Or at least he gave that impression, which loosens up batters real good. Nobody wants to dig in, right? No one's putting their front toe down next to the dish and like leaning over the plate when JR's pitching. As they said, more people got headaches when he pitched than any other pitcher in the big leagues. So he goes, um, I says, how many colleges and universities scouted you when you were in high school? And he went, 240. So he went to university 
Then, uh, sadly, he had a terrible, debilitating stroke in, at the height of his career. But when he first came up and he was 21, and the Astros signed him, and he took the money for his family, by the way. He took a baseball contract. By the way, baseball is a, a sport where you're going to the longevity. He could have played a lot of sports because he's gigantic. But he, cho- he chose baseball also. He was a superb pitcher. Uh, Willie Mays was there, still playing in his late 30s, early 40s. And J.R. Richard was brought in as a minor leaguer to pitch against him. And according to a brilliantly named source who played in the Astros organization named Scipio Spinks, <laughs> Willie Mays went up to J.R. Richard, and I'm assuming this was 71, and said, young man, please don't hit me. <laughs> Uh, J.R. Richards uh, gave a sermon when I interviewed him. Uh, the interview stopped at a certain point and he went off on how you need to be self-reliant and trust in yourself. And this is a man who'd been a major league ball player. He'd been a homeless person. He'd come back from that and made himself into a minister and was a, a force of nature. Uh, a, a, not a force of nature given naturally. Obviously, he had enormous talent to begin with. He remade himself, I think, from the ground up mm-hmm. as a person. And it was an impressive feat, and he was an impressive guy. Uh, I'm glad that I brushed up against him in this lifetime. And, uh, oh, I meant to bring the book out. Um, it's all right. I can just tell you. Uh, he, I have his book. I bought his biography, and I, I brought it for him to sign. And while we were having lunch, which was this enormous barbecue, and he and his family were really tucking in, I made a huge point out of interrupting him and being horrible. And um, I went over and I'm like, Mr. Richard, can I have your autograph? And I, because I had bought his book, he was, I could tell he was, you know, excited that I got his book and not some, you know, like a piece of paper or whatever. And he signed it for me. And I said, thank you very much. And then I went back to my table. I think it's on the, did you find it? I meant to bring it out. Also, the mayor of Houston. Oh, well, the mayor of Houston was good friends with him. He was good friends with everybody. This is what he wrote in my book. He, I, he knew my name because I had introduced myself to him. And we were hanging out all to, with all the ballplayers all day. Can you read it? Oh. To Mr. Comedy. <laughs> he knew that I was a comedian. And he wrote... To Mr. Com- what photo? The cover. Oh yeah. Well, that's him there, and that's it. That's him there holding one, two, three, four, five, six, seven baseball because his hand was that big. When you shook hands with him, it was like being enveloped in a carpet. J.R. Richard is swirling in the heavens. You've been the smartest crowd in the world. I've been the smartest man in the world. Uh, whoa! Every page that turns to be a satchel page, Randy Velvet, you can be a cool bond if you have to buy bonds. Make sure they're Bobby Bonds. I wish you nothing but love. Thanks for coming out, you guys. Good night.